Would you please turn to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew? We have made it to the New Testament. A big sigh of relief went out this week, did it not? Given some of the replies, I know it was. <laughs> so Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 13 here in a little bit, so if you want to mark that, Matthew chapter 16. Now, I think most of us have heard this phrase, there is no such thing as a stupid question, right? You've heard that? And while I agree with the overall notion of this phrase that we want to learn and encourage people to ask questions so their, their knowledge can increase, I, I'm all for, for that. But I'm guessing that you, if you're like me, you've heard some, some pretty dumb questions in your lifetime. So this got me thinking, I need to go to the internet and see what the internet has to say about this. And so I looked up some questions that we might consider maybe dumb. Number one, this might qualify. Are 60 seconds and one minute the same? I swallowed an ice cube whole. Should I be worried it's not come out yet? Does looking at a picture of the sun hurt your eyes? What happens to people born on February 29th? Do they stay the same age until four years passes by? Now, you've thought about that one before, right? I know you have. And then lastly, where is the specific ocean? Well, it's next to the Pacific Ocean, of course, right? Now, whether we agree with the phrase, there's no such thing as a stupid question or not, I think we would all agree that some questions carry more significance than others. Questions such as, what career path should I choose? Will you marry me? What city or neighborhood will I live in? These are, these are all life-changing and very significant questions. And in our passage this morning, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. And this conversation, we can frame it in really what I think are the most important questions that you could ever ask yourself. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come to this earth? And what does following Jesus mean? And so if you have Matthew chapter 16, we'll start at verse 13. And we're going to first look at who is Jesus. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, when we get to chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus is right in the midst of his three-year public ministry. Many scholars think that when he has this conversation, it's actually year three. And so as year three goes on, Jesus is now heading toward Jerusalem. He is now heading 
to the cross. But before he does that, he kind of takes his disciples off on what we might call a staff retreat. And he goes to this region of Caesarea Philippi, which was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus, he would go and visit Jerusalem at time, and that's where he would end his life and then be raised from the dead. But he did most, or at least a lot of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. And so he was gaining popularity. He was teaching, and people have never heard this before. He was teaching as one with authority. And Jesus, the greatest teacher and preacher this earth has ever seen. And Jesus was healing and doing miracles. And right before we get to our passage here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus feeds the 4,000. But that was just 4,000 men. The, the women and children were not counted. And so when you factor that in, some estimate 15 to 20,000 people were fed. And so everywhere he goes, the crowds, thousands upon thousands, are listening to him, wanting him to do a miracle. And so he gets away, at least for a little bit, from that, and he, he talks with his disciples. And he asks him, who are people saying that I am? And the disciples, they begin to list off names of prophets, Elijah, Jeremiah, etc., and what is so interesting about the response is it's very similar to the response that people give today. If this afternoon or this uh, week you go and, and speak with a family member, maybe a coworker that is not a believer in Jesus, and you just said, who is Jesus to you? You're going to get very similar responses. That Jesus was a good prophet, a good example, a good teacher. And all those things are correct, but that is not the answer that Jesus was striving for. And so he narrows his focus, and he asks his disciples, this core group of his followers, who do you say that I am? Not who do they say that I am, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, and whenever we are given a list of the, the 12 disciples, Peter is always listed first in the Gospels. And this is because he was the leader, he was the, the spokesman for the group. And he gives a, a great answer, and he says to Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now let's break down Peter's confession just a little bit. When Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, this is a royal title. So it's not Jesus' last name. Okay, he would have been known as Jesus, son of Joseph. Okay? And so this is a title for Jesus. And it means Messiah, it means the anointed one, it means the king descended from the line of David. Now, I know we've all been looking forward to get to the New Testament. I mean, it seemed like the prophets, it would never end. But did you have a little bit of disappointment when you opened up Matthew and the first chapter was a genealogy? Like, why? Not another list. I thought I went through this already. But why does Matthew do this? Well, it's interesting to compare Matthew and Luke. When you get to Luke, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. He's got a long list. But Matthew, he speaks of Abraham. He's showing that Jesus is an Israelite. He's from the people of Israel. And then he also mentions that he is the son of David, that he's from this, this royal line. And so I know the prophets wore you out. They wore me out, all this talk of sin and judgment. But yet there was always hope in the prophets, because they spoke of the coming Messiah. And so the people long for that, just as we have been longing for that over the coming months. 
So what Matthew is saying is that Jesus Christ, this long-awaited Messiah, is here. But not only does Peter call Jesus the Messiah, he says that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And so what Peter is saying is that Jesus is divine. So Jesus is not just a human Messiah, but Jesus is the divine Messiah. And so what we find in this confession of Peter is that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. That Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And so I want to ask you, who is Jesus to you? Is he just a good teacher? Just a good example? Have you placed your faith in Jesus as your king, as your Lord? But I want to press this further because you cannot stay neutral. There is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. If you are an unbeliever, we are so glad that you are here today. And I want you and encourage you to explore the claims of Jesus, who he is, why he came. And you can take time to do that, but eventually you will get to the point where you have to make a decision about who Christ is. C.S. Lewis has this famous line where he says that Jesus is either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. And he's right. I mean, think about what Jesus is saying and what he is accepting from the disciples. And put this in our context. If somebody came in today and said, I'm the son of man, that would be a, a red flag. And then if people were saying, you're the son of the living God, you're the Christ, and that person accepted it, we would say, you're, you're crazy. You're not a good example. You're not a good teacher. You're nuts. But this is what Jesus is doing, and this is why there's no middle ground with him. You can't just say he's a good teacher, because if he is claiming this and it's not true, again, he's crazy. He's a, he's a lunatic. And so again, I encourage you to explore the claims of Christ, but at some point you have to make a decision. Is he Lord or is he not? And if he is not to you, then you should just dismiss him and move on. Now, Peter, he makes this great confession, and then we get to verse 18, which is one of the most controversial verses in the entire Bible. The reason that it carries so much controversy is because who or what is the rock that Jesus is referring to. So if you have it open, go back to verse 18. Jesus, he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So again, who or what is this rock? Is this rock Peter? Is it Peter's confession? Or is Jesus the rock? Now here's where I land as of 12 p.m. yesterday, all right? <laughs> This verse, there's a play on words, because the name Peter in the Greek is Petros, which means a small stone. And so what Jesus is doing, he is saying that you are Peter, you are Petros, you are a small stone, but on this rock, and then Jesus is now pointing to himself, I will build my church. And Peter, he would be extremely important when it came to the spread of the gospel. When we get to the, the book of Acts, you're going to love it. The first half of the book of Acts is a lot about Peter, about how vital and important he was for the spread of the gospel. And so Jesus is not discounting the importance of Peter, but what he is saying to Peter and to us today is that Jesus Christ, he is the rock that the church is built on, not Peter. 
And because Jesus is the rock, we can have confidence that the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not overcome the church. And I think at times we've misunderstood uh, what Jesus is saying about the gates of hell, almost like Satan's kingdom is expanding. And I don't know what you think of all that talk about Satan and demons, and that may be too much for you. But I think when you look at our world, the destruction, the brokenness, it's not that hard to, to think that maybe something or someone is behind that. And that's what the Bible is saying to us. And so Satan, from long ago, he has set up his kingdom on this earth. But what Jesus is saying is that the church, we are the church, are to be offensive that we have weapons of warfare that the gates of hell will not overcome us. And so our weapons are not politics, as important as politics are. Our weapons are not fighting and bickering with other Christians over secondary and minor issues. Our weapons are prayer, of being salt and light, things that, that to the world don't seem that exciting, don't seem like they would work, but yet we're to pray, we're to be salt and light, we're to, to share the gospel with our friends and our coworkers. The way we live, how we, we care and love for each other in this room and, and out in the world, that is attractive for the gospel. And it may lead to someone to say, why do you do that? You seem different, and then you can share about how Jesus has made such a difference in your life. But we also take confidence that as the church, our churches, other churches, and it seems like we see this week after week as one Christian leader after another fails, but we are given the hope and the confidence that the church will not be overcome by Satan in his work, that Christ is there holding us. For 2,000 years, he has held us fast and he will continue to do so. Now, we might think that after the great confession of Peter and what Jesus says about the work of the church, that he would say, now go out, tell everybody about me. But that's not what he does. Instead, in verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anybody about who I really am. Why would Jesus do that? Seems strange. Well, one reason is the timing wasn't quite right, but the other is the disciples did not truly understand, even though Peter made this great confession about who Jesus is and why he came. And so this leads us to our second question that arises from this passage. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, at times in the Gospels, and when I say that, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books of the New Testament, as Jesus is speaking and as he's, he's teaching, many of the things that he says, particularly the parables, they're just hard to comprehend. It's confusing. Sometimes you're just like, okay, I don't understand, and I, I'm, I'm moving on. 
But yet when Jesus explains about why he came to this earth and what we find in the gospel of Mark when, when we're given this story as well is that Mark says that he plainly explained these things to the disciples. He wasn't speaking in, in riddles or parables. He, he very clearly said why he came and it was to die for us. And so what Jesus is explaining to his disciples and what we need to understand is that one of the main themes of the gospel is that Jesus became a man to be the suffering substitute. When we talk of the gospel, it literally means good news. It's an announcement of good news. And because we use that term good news, by implication it means there's bad news. And the bad news is that because of our sin and our rejection of God, because we want to do our own thing, that our relationship with God, the one who created us in his image, who loves us so much, that relationship has been damaged. And because God is holy, because we are sinful, it says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And so that means, this is the bad news, that we are spiritually dead. We do not desire the things of God. We have no desire for God. We actually want to block him out. We don't want to think about him. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ took our place he is our substitute. As it says in the Old Testament book of Isaiah in chapter 53, Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus came. He says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. When you hear that, isn't the love of Jesus for you absolutely incredible? That Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, suffered and died for you. And then as the Spirit works in your heart, you receive spiritual life. And so though we still physically die, we are given the promise, we have the hope because we've received spiritual life, because Jesus rose from the dead bodily, that we one day will be given new glorified and sinless bodies, and we will be with our Savior for all eternity. But this talk of a suffering Messiah, it made no sense to Peter and the rest of the disciples. Again, he's the spokesman, so what he was saying is what they held to as well. And so they, they still didn't get it, and what's so amazing is Peter, he, he has just said that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, and then he takes Jesus to the side and begins to rebuke him. You don't see this verse at Hobby Lobby with all the crafts, do you? <laughs> then he rebuked Jesus. No. And the reason that Peter did this is he misunderstood. There was a different expectation for the Messiah. They thought the Messiah would come and be the, the conquering hero. They were under the rule of the Romans, and they hated it. If you remember in our reading, they were under one power after another, Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, hundreds of years. So they longed for this Messiah to come and to, to free them, to restore things like they were under King David and Solomon. And so they had a different expectation. And so Peter, he struggles with this. The rest of the disciples struggle with this. And so Peter rebukes them. And we can hear that, we can read that, and we say, how could Peter do that? But yet, 
We do this all the time. We have a different expectation for how Christ should work in our life. We've placed our trust in him. We've, we've sacrificed for him. We have this expectation that he is to meet, and when it doesn't happen, we rebuke him. It may be verbally, mentally. We struggle with our marriage, with our, our families, with our careers, and that expectation, again, is not met, and so we get upset with the Lord. But Jesus, he's so patient with his disciples. He, he's trying to teach them about why he came. So he's trying to explain this to them, and then he, he moves on. So this is our third question from this text. What does following Jesus mean? Look at verse 24, and I'll read to verse 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, when it comes to the gospel, we are given so many benefits. We receive salvation, forgiveness. We are placed in God's family for all eternity. When we become a believer, we now have this community of other followers of Jesus that, that care for us and, and love us. It's wonderful. We have joy and, and peace. There's a, a satisfaction and a fulfillment that, that we've never had before. Now, there's still times of, of struggle and doubts. And there's times when we uh, don't have this peace and this joy. But yet these are benefits that we, we know and experience uh, at many times. So we thank the Lord for them. But what we need to understand, and if you're, you're not a believer today, that you need to understand as you think about the claims of Jesus, think about following him, is that even though we receive all these wonderful benefits, there is still a cost of following Jesus. And I don't say that when we talk of denying ourselves and, and carrying our cross that we, we can't enjoy things in life. The Apostle Paul, he wrote most, at least many, about half the New Testament books. He says this in 1 Timothy, that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's spiritual blessings. It may be physical, material. God blesses us because he loves us. So enjoy a good meal with your family. You know, if your car's breaking down all the time and you're worried about your family, get that nice new minivan. <laughs> He's not saying, Jesus is not saying you got to sell your house and go live in some cardboard box. But yet Jesus is calling us to deny ourselves, our, our sinful passions, to take up our cross daily. And this is very dramatic language. It would have really captured the disciples' attention because the cross to them, when you spoke of that, it was really like using a curse word. And so I've, I've struggled with what Jesus is saying. What does he mean exactly? Deny yourself, carry your cross. And so I want to frame it with these two questions. And this may help you as you kind of wrestle through this part of, of our passage. I want you to ask yourself this. How can I become more like Jesus? And how can I help others know Jesus? So are there some things in your life that you need to deny so you become more and more into the image of Jesus Christ? Are there specific sins that you are struggling with that are, that are keeping you from, from growing in your relationship with him? 
It could be pornography. It just keeps leading you astray. It may be bitterness. It may be comparing yourself to others online and and the the family, the situation that they have, the career that they have seems to be perfect and it's it's making you bitter, upset, starting to blame blame God for your situation. What may be keeping you from helping others know Jesus? I think one of the the main things is just fear of people. I mean, I I get it. I'm with you. To, To share your faith To invite someone to church, even if it's a friend, a family member, is hard. And so there's there's this fear that we have to to wrestle with. We kind of get over that fear, but again, it's hard to do. But maybe for you, it's not fear, it's just indifference. Where you're so focused on the here and now, the, the temporal, that we don't think of the eternal and how those that we love, if they don't know Christ, will be separated from him for all eternity. So again, it may be fear, it may be indifference that is, that is causing you not to kind of share your faith and let others know about Christ. Now this past week, and it was uh, no coincidence that this happened given the, the passage that we are in, uh, but as a staff, we got to visit with uh, two missionaries, some of you know them, uh, Hayden and Dara Bach, and on uh, Thursday, I believe, they, they flew out uh, to, to begin their, their missionary work. And so they were they're sharing with the staff uh, some of the, the struggles, and, you know, the difficulties of saying goodbye to family. And so we got to, to pray over them. It was a very sweet time. And then on Thursday, I received an email update from a young lady. Her name is Claire. And uh, she's uh, similar to Hayden and Dara going to kind of that Middle East region. And so she's leaving in about a week. And so she sent kind of this goodbye letter. She's going to be sending updates, but it was kind of saying goodbye and some of the struggles that she is dealing with right now. And so I want to read this. She says this. I've been contemplating and grieving the losses of home, comforts, freedoms, familiarity, and leaving behind all those I adore and who know me best. At the same time, I look forward to and anticipate the joys. There will be joy of navigating life in a new country, a new culture, a new language. It's scary and exciting. Fear is lessened at the thought of eventually getting to share the good news of hope and eternal life. Sharing his love and shining light in the darkness makes my heart happy. How unworthy and undeserving I am to have this privilege, yet he is worthy and deserving of all glory and praise. And then she ends with this. Any seeming loss I may experience pales in comparison to the one who left the comforts of his perfect heavenly home to offer his life as a sacrifice to save a dying, hopeless world. So feeling completely not up to the task, I step forward with confidence in the Lord's leading. I trust God is up to the task. I will simply move forward and do the next right thing. Now, Claire And Hayden Adair, they are going to what is unreached people groups. Hayden was sharing with us that they're trying to get to this one uh, place where there are 30 million people. So 30 million people live in this area, but only 200 are Christians. And so they are denying themselves. They are taking their cross. And and what Hayden and Dara was sharing, what Claire is sharing, is that there is loss. They're denying their, their family. They're denying their their comforts so that a a lost world can know Jesus Christ. 
And so my prayer is that there's people raised up in our church that will be missionaries. I pray for our, our kid ministry, and this is the work that Paul and Katie do with Kids in Action, to, to speak of missions. I hope for that, but it's also hard. You think of Rusty and his three kids that have given up so much of their life to do mission work and, and the strain and the hardship that Rusty and Stephanie have to deal with. And so most of us may not be called to global missions, but yet all of us are in our own mission field. And we all have things in our life that we have to deny. Things in our life where we need to take up our cross daily so that we become more and more like Jesus. But we don't do this in our own strength. And what's so amazing about the gospel is that we do not do these things to earn our relationship with Jesus. But because of our faith in him, because of what Christ has done, it now motivates us to want to live for him. But as Jesus said, as we deny ourselves, as we, as we take up our cross daily to the world that may seem so weird and strange, but yet when we do this, we're actually, we receive new life into Christ Jesus. And so I want to ask you if you would please bow your head and close your eyes. And I just want us to take a minute or so as we think about what it means to follow Jesus. And so I want to go back to those two questions, and I just want you to, in this time of reflection, think about this. How can I become more like Jesus? And how can I help others know Jesus? So as Claire said, what's that next right thing for you to do? Are there areas of sin that you just need to confess to the Lord? Areas of fear or indifference? It may be that you need to take that public step of baptism, that you are a believer in Christ, but you've never been baptized. Are there some simple ways that you could let your coworkers know that you're a Christian so that you can have some faith conversations with them? And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the first step in denying yourself is admitting your need of forgiveness and placing your trust in him. So if you'd please take a few moments and think through those questions. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, even though it's challenging at times. Lord, we ask for your help. Lord, maybe those blind spots, those things we're not seeing, Lord, that areas where we need to deny ourselves. 
Lord, please reveal that to us. Lord, help us to, to carry with us, Lord, that, that burden. Lord, that there's a world that is lost and does not know you. Lord, in our actions, help us to be salt and light. Help us, Lord, to be pointing them to you in the way that we act, the way that we love others, the way that we care for them. Lord, also help us to share the hope that we have in you, Jesus. And we are thankful, Lord Jesus, that you denied yourself for us. And that when we stumble and fail, Lord, we, are, we don't look to our own efforts, but we look to the work that you did for us. We thank you for that. We ask this in your name. Amen.